David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. I am Elliot Harris. We have another great show today, a couple of great guests. Later in the show, we will have former University of Kansas and American Football League, National Football League quarterback John Hadle. First up, we have Tim McCarter, longtime broadcaster, longtime baseball catcher, here is our interview that David and I conducted with Tim McCarver. It's hard to believe it's been 55 years since uh, since I signed with the Cardinals back in 1959. And, uh, in fact, my first major league hit was an infield hit off Glenn Hobby at Wrigley Field in 59. <laughs> at the age of, at the woeful age of 17. Oh, to be 17 again. Some of us can't remember that far back. <laughs> I can. <laughs> How did you get up so quickly, even if it was for a brief cup of coffee then? Well, uh, in, in 59, I mean, the September call-ups are, are often young players uh, where organizations want to uh, give young players a chance to uh, to come up for a cup of coffee and uh, wean them uh, over a period of years to be comfortable when, when they put on a major league uniform. The, the, the interesting thing, uh, I was up parts of 1959, 60, and 61. I was up for a month in 59, and then I was called up to contribute in 1960, and I had 10 at-bats in two months. <laughs> and then in 1961, a different circumstance, uh, Hal Smith, the regular catcher, uh, had a heart attack, and I was called up for a couple of months in the middle of the season, and then my only full year in the minor leagues was 1962. And the reason I bring those things up, my my waivers were up. You had three waivers, and uh, in 1963, I had a horrible spring training. It was to be my first full year, which, interestingly, was Stan Musial's last year, and uh, the Cardinals had to keep me. And fortunately for me, uh, when they put me in there and when they started me occasionally in April and May, I happened to do well and took over the number one catching job. And I, the rest, as we are prone to say, is history. So your first manager is what, Sally Hemus? Uh, first manager was Sally Hemus, right. And in fact, in 1961, when I was called up, uh, Sally Hemus was replaced at the Coliseum in Los Angeles by Johnny Keane. And Johnny came, uh, became our manager uh, through 1964 and, of course, managed uh, the World Series champion uh, uh, Cardinals um, to a World Series championship in 64 over the Yankees. And then, uh, surprising everybody, Johnny became the manager of the Yankees after that year, 
and Yogi was fired, and Red Shandies became our manager and was our manager for 12 years. How, how stunned were you that Johnny Keene submitted his letter of resignation? Did you see that coming at all? Well, we had heard rumors uh, that year, and of course we were 11 and a half games behind uh, the Phillies on, uh, on August 23rd and uh, ended up winning the pennant on the last day of the season. We had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, from, uh, from history, we, we find out, uh, particularly from David Halberstam's book, October 1964, which was a great book, um, uh, he, he found out that uh, Leo DeRocher had actually signed a contract that year. And uh, and then when Johnny Keene moved to the Yankees, uh, the Cardinals had a real PR problem, so they tore up DeRocher's contract, coaxed Red Shandies into managing the team, and as I said, Red became the manager for 12 years. So, uh, you know, a lot of things that happened behind the scenes from a ball player standpoint, we had no idea what was going on. No. Yeah. But Leo had a Cardinals background, too, so... I don't know that now, he had a Cardinals background, but not nearly as strong as Red Shandy's. So, from a from a public relations standpoint, um, you know, even though DeRocher played in the '30s with the Gas House Gang and all that sort of stuff, I mean, Red Shandy's was a Hall of Famer to be, and and one of the more popular figures next to Stan Musial in, in St. Louis Cardinal history. So. Did Musial ever want to be a manager? Because it would seem natural no, to make no, 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 no. Stan wanted no part of that job. No, no. He's, he, he, made that, he made that clear early. But interestingly, Stan, uh, after Bing Devine was fired, Bob Housen was hired. And then Bob Housen moved to the Cincinnati Reds. And Stan became our general manager for one year, 1967. And as befitted Stan Musial, everything he touched turned to gold, the Midas touch. Uh, we won the world championship against the Red Sox that year, and uh, and and then Stan quit. He said, "This GM job's no big deal." <laughs> and, it's so easy. Uh, What's the challenge, right? That was Stan. I mean, Stan. <laughs> everything Stan touched turned to uh, turned to more than gold. Now, growing up in Memphis, you were also a standout running back or a standout football player at Christian Brothers High School, and had an offer from Tennessee and Notre Dame to play. Does that sound right? Yes, that's correct. Um, But, you know, in those days, there there was no draft, so I couldn't be – the draft wasn't instituted until 1965. So uh, there was no way I could be drafted, so the bonus rule applied, and I was offered a big bonus. And uh, to the son of uh, of a Memphis policeman, that was a lot of money. $75,000, $75,000, and that's why I signed with the Cardinals and opted not to go uh, to either Tennessee or Notre Dame. It would probably have been Tennessee, but it was interesting. I was always, a, you know, growing, growing up a Catholic and going to a Catholic uh, high school and, and, uh, and, and grammar school. Uh, uh, Notre Dame was obviously prominent in those days. Terry Brennan was the coach, and I remember going up there and sitting on the bench on October 12th, 1958, and uh, that was one of the biggest thrills to this day, one of the biggest thrills of my life. Now, you have uh, another Cardinal broadcaster, Mike Shannon, who went to CBC in St. Louis and was a pretty good football player. Did you ever guys... Great football player. 
Did you guys ever discuss who was a better football player? <laughs> no, because we played different positions. Mike was a quarterback, and I was an end. Uh, in those days, guys went both ways, so, um, you know, offensively and defensively. So, uh, who knows? I mean, Mike, a year older than I, um, you know, could have been throwing, throwing – had I gone to CBC St. Louis or him to CBC in Memphis – uh, we could have hooked up for a few pass uh, catches. But uh, we, we chose the right sport. <laughs> what was it now, like catching Bob Gibson? I mean, it just seemed like no one could hit that guy. He was so intimidating. Uh, Bob Gibson was intimidated, is intimidating, and will be intimidating until he dies. Uh, he's a wonderful guy. I've, I've told him, uh, all these years, I said, Bob, he's one of my closest friends in life. And, and I told him, you know, Bob, you're just a big pussycat. You know, you, you scare people away. He said, don't you tell anybody. I said, in other words, it has been all an act all these years. And he kind of laughed. Uh, but Bob was a ferocious competitor. I think uh, n- none of that uh, has has died down over the years. I mean, everything that has been said about Bob Gibson. Everything that I've said about Bob uh, over the years is absolutely true. There's nothing apocryphal in, uh, in, um, in, in talking about Bob. I mean, his athletic prowess is well known. Uh, seven straight World Series wins, eight, eight out of nine complete games. Unbelievable stuff, stuff that will never particularly in this day and age with pitch counts and stuff like that, it'll never be duplicated uh, in my view. Uh, but Bob was just a classic competitor, uh, remarkable athlete, great basketball player, played for the Globetrotters at one time. And um, all you have to do is look at Bob's postseason uh, World Series um, uh, uh, pitching performances, and, and you'll, you'll see who the real Bob Gibson is. I mean, uh, one of the great pitchers ever, and that's not that's not uh, underplaying it. So, as catcher, were you res- the one most responsible for his 1.12 ERA? No, he was. <laughs> no. no, no, that's uh, hard. <laughs> the one thing about Bob, Bob, Bob had great control, and a lot of people think that um, you know that because he threw hard, that that was the reason for his success. Not really. In 1968, I mean, he got away with pitches that other pitchers didn't get away with. Uh, but in 1968, and I've said this many times, he went through a period where about 95% of the time, maybe even more, he could put the ball in the space of about two widths of the baseball on the outside part of the plate, primarily to right-handed batters. Uh, right-handers had no chance that year. Uh, left-handers had a better chance, but <laughs> I mean, this guy was, uh, was unbelievable as far as spotting the ball. And a lot of people don't, um, don't know, uh, and it's not talked about enough, uh, about Gibson's control. His control was phenomenal, uh, particularly in 1968 to the point where, uh, baseball lowered the mound the next year and, when you can change the rules of the game and change the rules of the playing field, uh, that means you've done pretty well. And that's what happened after 1968 with Bob. 
one of the uh, cardinal stars of that era was third baseman Ken Boyer. And as a lifelong Cardinal fan, I've, I haven't understood why Ron Santo gets into the Hall of Fame and Ken Boyer doesn't. Because when I look at their statistics, they look pretty close to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ron may have had a few more home runs, but uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I think Kenny Boyer has been overlooked and not even mentioned, really, in Hall of Fame uh, conversations. And, uh, I mean, he was the captain. <clears throat> uh, there, there are two players in, in, uh, in my recollection that re- were referred to as captains uh, long after their playing days were over. One was Pee Wee Reese of the Dodgers, and the other was Kenny Boyer. Kenny was nobody else but the captain. MVP in 1964, uh, the great home run in game four, the grand slam off Al Downing. Um, and uh, he, was, uh, he was a real leader, and had, given the, had he been given the opportunity with a good team, he would have been a good major league manager, but unfortunately health, uh, bad health intervened, and Kenny died in, uh, in 1982. You weren't too shabby either in that 64 World Series with the home run. Yep, not bad. <clears throat> you can look it up, <laughs> as they say. Now, do you remember the umpire for your first game? I have no idea, no. <clears throat> okay, because it says, I read somewhere that it was Brent Musburger. Oh, oh, that was my first professional game. I thought right. you meant oh, my first, I'm first sorry. major league game. Absolutely. <laughs> Brent Musburger uh, and I, Brent was uh, one of the umpires in, uh, in 1959 in Waterloo, Iowa. He was 19 years old. I was 17, and uh, Brent was the umpire. He was trying it for a year, and uh, in fact, I threw the first pitch out in Philadelphia a couple of years ago, and Steve Carlton was the catcher. Brent Musburger was the home plate umpire, and my grandson was the batter. And I threw the ball out. What a, what a proud moment that was. Was it a strike? No. <laughs> Close enough. I'm sure Carlton ribbed you about that. Uh, no, he didn't. No, Musburger called it a strike anyway. <laughs> Speaking of Carlton, did, did you see the greatness that was in him? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Steve, Steve had two pitches when he signed, a fastball and a curveball. Um, in 1969, he came out with a slider, and he learned that slider from Bob Gibson on the trip to Japan in 1968. And you could see that slider developing. And as a matter of fact, he became the first pitcher to strike out 19 hitters uh, against the Mets and lost the game 4-3 to in 1969 on September 15th. And, uh, and then three years later, Steve was, was uh, traded uh, for... Rick Wise, and that slider became uh, good enough to win him 251 games with the Philadelphia Phillies, and pretty staunch. How did you end up becoming Carlton's personal catcher? Was that his choice, or did the manager realize you guys worked so yeah, well? Well, that was he had asked uh, 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 Paul Owens, the general manager of the Phillies, if I could catch. I mean, he had gone through three years of sub 500 uh, appearances. Uh, and, and performances, uh, and records. And, uh, and the only thing I did when I caught him in 1976 as, 
you know, fate was fate works in strange ways. I mean, we had three catchers with the Phillies on opening day, first game of the year. Johnny Oates uh, separated his shoulder when Dave Parker collided with him at home plate. Otherwise, I would have been the third catcher. And you know what? You know, most teams don't even carry three catchers now. So I'd have been the third catcher and occasional pinch hitter. But because Oates was uh, was hurt, I became the second pit, uh, catcher and then ended up catching Carlton. And uh, uh, his record speaks for itself. So does mine. Let's move on, guys. Who was the toughest pitcher that you faced? Gibson. Was the toughest pitcher that I caught? Gibson. Carlton was a very close second. The toughest pitcher that I faced? Sandy Koufax. And a guy named Joe Gibbon of the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates. And there were a few other left-handers in there also. At what point did you know that you wanted to go into broadcasting? Into broadcasting? Yes, sir. I, I had a whiff of that in 1976. I had I had a good year catching Steve. Steve won 20 games on the last day of the season. Not all 20, of course. It was 20th on the last day of the season against the Mets. And we lost uh, as Cincinnati, the big red machine, took three in a row from us. Uh, but after that season, uh, having a good year, I wanted to continue to play the the Steve Carlton McCarver uh, uh, combo tandem uh, was deemed to be favorable, and uh, and you know the Phillies were willing to uh, to give me what I wanted from a contractual standpoint. And in those days, that was the first year of free agency and contracts were, you know, I never had an agent as a player, but uh, but anyway, uh, all of it worked out. And uh, the Toronto Blue Jays contacted me and wanted me to become an announcer. Offered me a four-year contract. Uh, I, you know, I knew I had some friends in Toronto. I had more friends in Montreal, and they worked the Toronto deal. So uh, the Phillies got wind of that, and they said that uh, they would offer me a, a two-year deal when my playing deal, playing career was over. Uh, to broadcast for the Phillies. So that was all I needed and the impetus that I needed. I ended up playing another three years, but uh, I became a, uh, uh, became an announcer in 1980, uh, the year after I retired. Well, you played a little in 1982, though, because you played in four decades. No, I played in 1980. I, I came back for the month of, uh, of September for 1980, but that was just a courtesy call. As a matter of fact, I had a uh, I had a uh, a show on I had a, a post game show on the air that year that I did in uniform. Now that may never have been done in the history of the game for a team. I actually interviewed the other side if the if the other team won. And that was a year that the Phillies not only won the pennant, but they won their first World Series. But I was awfully proud. Uh, Bill Giles asked me if I wanted to do it. I thought it was brilliant. And, uh, and I told him, uh, absolutely. And Dallas Green, the manager, had no problem with it. So I became, uh, I had a post-game show in uniform. I'd go right from the bench, um, to the uh, to the television camera and interview either a Phillies player or whomever they were playing 
that night. <laughs> how, how do you get the competitive juices to, to turn off that quickly? Competitive from what standpoint? From a all of a sudden you're trying to beat the other team, and now well, I, I I didn't play that much. That's how, <laughs> I get during the game. I became uh, uh, more interested in my post game guests than than the uh, than the score of the Phillies game. So it was an odd it was an <laughs> odd situation. Uh, but it's not you know I was not a regular catcher by any means. I only had, I think, five or six at bats in September. Uh, so I was, I was well rested and well prepared to do a post game show. So the one moment of your career I never understood was the Grand Slam single, how you beat Gary Maddox around the bases. No, I didn't beat him. I passed him. <laughs> There's a big difference. I couldn't beat him. Uh, you know, he could spot me first base and I wouldn't have beaten Gary. Uh, but, uh, Gary came back to tag up and, uh, and that's when I hit the baseball, uh, was over Dave Parker's head, of course, in, um, July 4th, 1976. And, uh, and Ed Vargo, the, the second base umpire, I looked up and he was looking right at me. I was nailed. And, uh, I said, I didn't pass him. He lapped me and he could have. <laughs> But um, but anyway, I was called out and given credit for a grand slam single. <laughs> well, another single you had was in the 1966 All Star Game, which was day in St. Louis. And, uh, he let off the, the game winning round. Yeah, he ended up scoring the winning run. Yeah, that was a, that was a big moment. I'll tell you. You know, all of these things, guys, were big moments. I mean, you can't creep creep past these events. I mean, you got to speed past them because that's that's kind of the way it feels over the last 55 years. I mean, uh, it's been a blur. Uh, uh, and the interesting people that I've met uh, going into the broadcast booth in 1980, working uh, for the Phillies, then the Mets, uh, and, then, uh, and then the Giants for a short period of time. I worked three years for the Yankees, and I've worked for all four networks, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, and I'm presently working for the St. Louis Cardinals and doing a few games. And, uh, you know, I enjoy the game. The game has been my life as much as anybody who's ever signed a contract as a player or a broadcaster. I mean, the game has been my life. Um, and I have, uh, uh, have there been down periods? Well, of course there have. Uh, but for the most part, uh, you know, I've I, uh, I'm very proud, and I put my body to work up against anybody. Who was your favorite partner in the booth? Oh, gosh, I've had so many. Uh, Al Michaels was sensational. Dick Enberg taught me a lot. So did Al. Uh, the great Jack Buck was St. Louis. Uh, uh, Sean McDonough, uh, who was also doing Boston games at the time. Uh, Joe Buck and I had our longest run, 18 years together, and Joe is a real close friend. It, it would, it would be very difficult uh, for anybody to top Joe. And I'm presently working with uh, with a gentleman in the Cardinal booth uh, named Dan McLaughlin, who works as hard as anybody as, uh, as I've ever seen. Uh, and we became fast friends immediately, and that's that's what happens. I mean. You know, if you're a good guy, if you work hard, uh, you know, people respect that. I respect it. They respect me. 
And, uh, and that's what uh, leads to harmony in the booth. What is it with these cardinal broadcasters? They're all becoming Hall of Famers. I mean, back in the 60s, you had Buck, Kerry Garagiola. Again, you have Shannon. You've had yourself, Bill White. I mean, yeah, they're a bunch of bunch of guys who have uh, uh, who have worn the uh, the birds on the bat, and uh, and I don't know, I don't maybe it's in the water, I don't know, uh, but it's uh, it's worked over the years, and it's uh, it's amazing the number of broadcasters that have been spawned uh, with the Cardinal organization. I, th- I think one partner you might have left out was the legendary Ralph Kiner with the Mets. No, I didn't leave him out. I just uh uh I didn't I didn't leave him out intentionally. Uh and I also didn't leave out Bobby Mercer intense intentionally. I've worked three years with Bobby in the Yankee booth and uh and Ralph Kiner was just a jewel. I mean we're still I'm still very close with his family. Went to his services uh uh earlier this year. Uh and he was uh he was something. He was uh he was uh, I remember a writer in, in uh, New York who, ca- who called him Precious, and boy, was he ever precious, and precious to the game, too. We've been doing our show for four years now, interviewing the Hall of Famers, talking about their careers, and you gave me the idea because I remember turning on the TV one Sunday morning and seeing you talking to Willie Mays. How did you go about doing the Tim McCarver show? Well, uh, we've been on the air for 13 years, and we've been in reruns over the last year, as a matter of fact, uh, for various reasons, and we're supposed to uh, start taping again on the 9th of September. Uh, but I was asked uh, 13 years ago in New York if I'd be interested in it, and we tried it out. It worked. And uh, I've really enjoyed that over the years. It's uh, It's been a source of a great deal of comfort to me. When you were traded to Philadelphia, part of that was Kurt Flood, who refused to go. Guys, i got time for one more. No problem. The Kurt Flood, the Kurt Flood trade. Yes, uh, I had no idea that Kurt was going to take uh, that route. Uh, when we were traded back in 1969 for Dick Allen, Cookie Rojas, Jerry Johnson, and, uh, and the Cardinals sent four players, including Kurt and me, uh, to Philadelphia. And, uh, I had no idea how it was gonna, how it was gonna work. And, uh, and then Kurt all of a sudden, as a matter of fact, had Kurt not, uh, had that deal gone through, the player to be named later, uh, was supposed to Pardon me. Was supposed to be Mike Shannon, and Mike Shannon came down with nephritis. Uh, so instead of Mike Shannon, Willie Montanez became the player in place of Kurt Flood. A lot of people don't know that or don't remember that. But it, it was a uh, it was a, a big surprise to everybody in baseball. And I think uh, I think uh, uh, you know the fact that Kurt would give up a hundred and ten thousand dollars salary in those days, which was a ton of money, and uh, and 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 stick to his principles uh, was was quite something. And uh, here, five or six years later, free agency was spawned, and and I think Kurt Flood deserves a lot of credit for taking that first step. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Tim McCarver. After this brief break, we will be back with football's John Hadle. 
You're listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. 